0: All right, everybody, this is day three, Music Pro Summit. Uh, lots of information has been shared this week. Uh, Karen's last session was amazing as always. I'm really excited for this one. Uh, Ty and I had a really great chat earlier in the week uh, about what we're gonna talk about. And uh, really we could go forever on this. I, I believe <laughs> we could have a few hours for this. Uh, just before we jump in, I have to do the bit of the housekeeping. Uh, as this is the last session of the day. I just wanna make sure that our sponsors and funders are correctly thanked because we could not do this without them. So thank you to Slate Music, CD Baby, CMRA, Banzoogle, Seneca College, City of Toronto, Global Affairs, Canada, Ontario Creates and Factor. We could not do this without them. Please go to their socials support. Like there's lots of information at those uh, accounts. Now uh, with this session, uh, we we we've like I said, Ty and I had a really good info session leading up to this. And uh, before we get into it, I want to give Ty the opportunity to give us a little bit about his background, which is pretty extensive and and impressive. So, Ty, if you could just give us a, a snapshot of uh, your career.
1: Yes. Well, I'm old. No, I'm not at all. Um, my background is I've actually started in video games doing sound engines and sound systems for video games. I worked on the first. Tetris. Actually, I did the crazy, annoying music platform that brought you that fun, ever increasing music for Tetris. And so I started them. And eventually, the music platforms became tools musicians used. So I worked on some of the first um, authoring uh, products for people making music with computers. So I worked on uh, uh, stuff that potentially digital design used. And and then I created consumer products that let users generate their own music for Broderbund software and others. And then eventually I got this great idea that we were going to make the virtual album of the future. And I was going to do that with Peter Gabriel and David Bowie. And so I worked on what were called enhanced CDs and CD-ROMs. This was before the internet. And then eventually those projects uh, uh, turned into websites and technology for the web. And I'm one of the founders of a company called GraceNote, which created the first metadata base for CDs and information that powered iTunes. And so a whole lot of CD ripping and CD encoding and all kinds of stuff going on with that. And I stayed with GraceNote until we sold it to Sony uh, and Nielsen. So now it's owned by Nielsen. And uh, Grace Note, I think, got up to about 1,500 people, 1,600 people and has television and movies and music and uh, even sports data. And so I uh, was the guy, Mr. Metadata, for a while. Uh, and then I got the great idea to run away to the record business and become the CTO of Universal Music, which I didn't do for very long. But uh, while I was there, I promoted high-fidelity audio and got into the idea of us having a differentiated kinds of experiences for music and interactivity. And, uh, and then when I left Universal... I had a lot of contacts with all the different music startups and things that were going on. So I started investing and advising and working with different companies. I work with primarily right now with title, uh, which is now part of square. And so I've been doing that for a while. And then I have uh, quite a few other smaller companies that I advise that are either in metadata or advertising or NFTs or, you know, a lot of different areas. And so I could talk about all these, you know, I've learned a lot through working with these entrepreneurs and that's uh uh, a great way to learn because they're working on all the new stuff and I get in there and, and try to add some adult supervision and uh, hopefully make them successful. So hopefully that's a little bit of my background.
0: So you've done a few things. Done a
1: few things. I a long <laughs> I've been very lucky to be able to work my
0: whole career in music. You know, you, you kind of reminded me of uh, early days. Uh, we were working with a developer and uh, we were kind of the when I had a music community going, we did something called CDX. Which was embedded uh, player on the CD that you put in your computer and it would stream new music. So the CD you buy the CD, but you could always get new music, right? And and all the record labels were like, "Not nah, that will never happen," and uh, <laughs> they 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 did, just didn't go for it. But here we are; streaming is our world.
1: Well, and and by the way, all of those you know kind of rich content experiences are coming back now. And I know we're going to talk about this later, but in the NFT space, there's a lot of opportunity for creating immersive and visual experiences that can be separately monetized. And so it's uh, one of the great things about technology is, you know, things that didn't succeed before can come back to life again and uh, in a little bit different spin and maybe successful.
0: Absolutely. Now with that, let's jump into the live streaming talks. Uh, you've got a great background. You can see cameras, a- angles and everything. <laughs> yeah. uh, like the production is taking place. Uh, Give us a, give us a little bit about where you see live streaming as right now, but also what you think say twelve months from now.
1: Right. So I, when the pandemic hit, I have a business partner. His name is Barry Summers, and he's a consummate filmmaker for concerts. And he was doing these, uh, you know, DVDs and live streaming things for Guns and Roses and big bands, and. He said, "Boy, I think the only thing left to do right now is streaming. Like, it basically, there's not going to be anybody with an audience for a while. Why don't we use this opportunity to try to create some really good product with these different artists and try some different ideas? And uh, technology's changed a lot, and maybe we can actually come up with some new ideas about fan interaction and things like that." So I, I, you know, did a streaming concert with Bush. I did some projects with the Goo Goo Dolls. We did something with Three Eleven. You know, we've been basically working with different artists during the pandemic. And uh, what we've learned from that is the following, which is that definitely people will watch online. There's no problem getting people to come to the shows. The question is, will they watch and pay? And if they will pay, how will they pay? Will they pay for a pay-per-view? Will they join a subscription? Will they want to buy it? What, you know, is it an NFT? What is this thing? And so what we found is, is that uh, uh, we could get them to pay uh, a large amount of people to pay a small amount of money. And we would rather have that like 50,000 people paying a few dollars than a small amount of people paying 10 or $20. And uh, the bands wanted more exposure. We also figured out that we can show people the concert, you know, free for a while because they need to see what it's going to look like and get them involved. And then the paywall goes up after a few minutes. And that was an important thing. Like just saying you can't see anything until you pay me $10 was not that great. Cause each time we had a new band, we had a different fan base and they maybe that was the first real big stream by that band. They hadn't seen anything, you know, and yes, they saw the free concerts that we all saw as part of COVID on the web. We didn't really want them to think it was that because it wasn't just a guy in his living room with a cell phone camera. It was actually a multi-camera shoot in HD with good sound. So showing it to them was important. And that's not something a lot of people do. A lot of people, you have to pay to pay to play. So anyways, what do we think is going to happen in the future?
0: Well, Well, actually, can I jump in for a second? Sure, sure, sure. There's something that, you know, like, so I've been developing websites since like late nineties. I don't know if you remember, there was a crash around 2002. Oh yeah. Dot bomb. Uh, Yeah. And a lot of it was, and we called it the walled gardens. People would spend so much money to create content and then put a website up, but you didn't even know what that content was until you paid to get past the wall. So so we could learn from those past internet mistakes in that you have to prove value first and you have to get people engaged and, and really build that community. I, we keep talking about community uh, where they're confident and next time you do something, they're confident to come back right away. Uh, so- You
1: are completely correct. And we definitely found that. we. Um uh, it's interesting because, you know, the, I think the other thing is, is that the quality of what people were getting for streaming was so different. You know, some people were really like just performing in their living room and some people were doing full on, like we were doing full on productions, like a television, you know, uh, capable production. And so people didn't have any idea what they were really going to get. And by the way, the pricing had nothing to do with the quality, like terrible quality things for $20 and amazing things for, $20 it was the same price so that wasn't a real guide for people to like kind of go ah oh, the good things are $20 and the bad things are ninety nine. so they didn't know what they were going to get and uh, they knew they liked their artist they weren't sure what they were going to get and so, so so I think across the industry there was a lot of unevenness about what worked and what didn't work and uh, there were some massive big successes if you have you know Dua Lipa and Elton John on the same event and like that was successful. If you were a K-pop band and you had 50 million fans, those were successful. Question is what, what was successful for the mid range of bands, the bands that were, that were playing 500 to 2,500 seats, you know, kind of venues, those kind of guys, you know, who have fan bases, you know, but could those guys make something happen? Some did. And some did, you know, we, we did pretty good with Bush. We, we, they had an international audience. They had about a hundred thousand people came to watch the show. You know, like, you know, that worked. And, uh, Uh, so 311 was more like 50,000, you know? So the reality is how do you, how do you know what's going to work or not? And, And also they have to activate their fan base. What they're doing has to be somewhat unique. I don't know. There's a lot of issues for streaming only concerts. Um, in today's world now people are going back on tour or at least trying to go back on tour. So many of these are hybrid shows, which means you're capturing by camera, something that's in front of a live audience. And uh that that's good in some ways and hard in others. What was great about the ones that we did in the studio is the camera guy could be like on the stage, like right in front of the artist, which you can't do if there's people in the audience trying to actually watch the guy. So what's happening when you have an audience is the cameras are pulled back a little bit. They can be on the side stage, they can't be, you can't get that really up personal playing to the camera kind of shot that easily and so they're a little less intimate and a little bit harder to capture when you have an audience if you're using robot cams and they're in the sky it works really well uh it works it works a lot better for younger men who have all their hair because when the cameras are up high you don't want to be getting just like you know a lot of reflection let's just call it that so uh you know uh, that's another issue too which is how they make, you make it make it look and you know in the hybrid world it's, it's harder but you often have a more uh, responsive show because the, they're reacting to the fans and they have the, you know, that whole interaction, which you can't get if they're not there. So uh, what's, what, can you compare one to the other? No, not, not, not real.
0: Right. And so um, just a real quick comment uh, as to what Ty was saying too, is think of like a UFC pay-per-view. There's often like a undercard that's free and then the wall comes up and you've had to pay, but they give you that, you know, little taste uh, before uh, opting in. And, and often it's very successful. It's a very successful model. And truthfully last year when live streaming was starting, I, I was uh, sort of trying to coin the phrase that actually it's pay-per-view that we're doing in a lot of cases. Like if we think of that term, you know what it is because that's been going on. And li- like, as you said, live streaming was, Really varied, and I think uh, going through that phase of defining to the audience what they can expect from live streaming because it is all over the map. Now let's jump to that second question of what do you think, say, twelve months from now? Well, so
1: so the other thing that we learned was so one so we did do live streams, but we also had a catalog. So Barry happened to have produced I don't know twenty concerts that he had cleared the rights for synchronization, everything else. And so he basically had a library of concerts we could draw from. So we actually gave people a subscription option because they could then go after they watched the live thing into our thing and then watch these other shows. And if they liked Bush, they probably would like the other shows that we had to go to watch the Smashing Pumpkins or whatever. And so the reality is that's been a big difference. Most of the live stream companies don't clear any of the sync rights. It's one and done. The show goes out, the show is over, and it's never to be seen again. And uh, that's not really actually the best business model because, because there's this whole second life of the concert, which is in syndication and going to VOD and going to these other platforms. And so, but that requires a organization that can clear rights. And a lot of these guys don't have that. Certainly the bands don't have that in their own arsenal typically. So it's uh, something that we've done differently. And we've noticed there's a few others that are doing that to build a VOD platform Because then you can build a longer customer relationship. If it's just the live shows you're doing, you're hoping that you have something for them every week or two to look at. But if you really want them, every major music service depends on the catalog. So got to have a catalog and you got to have the new things. That's the the first I'd say. In the future, I think what's going to happen is there's a lot of new companies and other companies are partnering with venues. So the venue is wired, the camera guys are there. And whenever a band plays that venue, they'll have the option to do the live stream as part of what they do and that can generate additional ticker revenue also can i'll call it ungeo lock them so let's say you know when you do a live stream that can go anywhere in the world so your fans can see it from wherever there's a little bit of an issue of time zone so you know obviously your fans in japan may not want to get up at four in the morning to watch you perform maybe they do (laughs) but but uh generally speaking you can unlock the region it's, it's important to think about how that's all done with the venue partner because they want to sell the tickets out that are for their venue. So a geofence that's like put a two-hour window around the venue might make a lot of sense because people within two hours could drive to the show and then people outside that are very unlikely they're going to come to the show. So let's sell something to them. And so how do you, how do you build that geofence is kind of an interesting debate with these venue guys. So I do think that this kind of logic is really important and people are still experimenting and a lot of new companies are coming. We're going to see a lot of this going on, especially all winter because uh, we're not going to be, we're not going to be fully back to a full circuit of live shows this winter.
0: Yeah. And that all makes so, so perfect sense. And like, we're a prime example. I know we've got attendees from India, from, Asia, from uh, Africa, and UK, Europe, they're probably sleeping right now. We're posting the video tomorrow, and, and each day people are re-watching it the day after because of time zones issues. So uh, we're a prime example here of, yeah, of doing we, that.
1: We really want to do, I mean, one thing the things we want to do, we want to do a world tour by somebody, but they would do it in place. And we like had this idea that like, you know, they would they would you know start their first show, you know, at midnight, the first night, they would load in on a Friday and they'd do like a midnight show and then that, that show would be broadcast to a certain part of the world. Then they'd wake up the next day and they did the show for the UK and then they'd definitely do the show for the United States. They'd, do, they'd actually do three shows over 20, 24 hours and uh, yeah. cover the whole world so they could have live fan interaction and personalize it to the region. And, uh, you know, I think somebody will probably do that this year because there is great technology for fan interaction now. Um, both audio technology, where the fans can ta- chat with each other, and also, you know, obviously textual, and there's probably going to be a video one as well, where the fans all come in like Zoom, like we are, and are on there, and you know, that's going to be an interesting experience.
0: Yeah, it, can you talk a little bit more about that? Because I, there's been some people asking about that in previous sessions. Like, so there's soon, a new. How soon do you think it'll take place that, where people can actually talk to the band? So. Fly machine is a new company that got funded
1: some guys out of red light and friends of mine. So fly machine has real-time audio show. It has clubhouse over the concert. That's the best way to describe it. And so, and, but it's like audio only, it's not audio visual yet. So there's a different thing of the band's going to see you now. Something else that we, we talked about when you and I talked was there is a audio visual talk to the band component. That's um, there's a company called archiver. Which is like Archive R, uh, arch, arch, Archiver VR. And they do the meet and greets. And for the Google Goo Dolls, they have a platform, if you can imagine, that's like Zoom that we have, where the fans all queue in like a queue to talk to the Google Goo Dolls for two minutes. And the fans get in the queue, and then boom, it gates the fan in. The band is in there now talking to the fan in kind of a special private meet and greet. There's a timer counting down. From two minutes they talk to the band if the band really likes what they're saying they can add time they can like hit a button and add 15 seconds and talk to you more or for somebody they know a lot of the meet and greets are people the bands know because they've been doing it for years and they're like oh susie you know great to see you and they add more time because they know person. and so uh and then they can take a group photo together it has like a photo thing so it merges their pictures and they get like a memorabilia piece and there's a merchandise signing component and, so these platforms exist, and a lot of artists are doing big business with this. You know, the the merchandise, online merchandise sales for an artist of their size can be tens of thousands of dollars, thirty thousand, forty thousand dollars for one online show, and the meet and greets can be similar. So this is a so to really do it all right, you want to do the concert, you want to do the meet and greets before and after the show, want to have a merch experience, and maybe other things, and so uh, and that's all stuff that was last year and next year probably have nfts as part of this so i think it can really turn into a good business that requires you to have a fan base i mean you can't do this stuff with 25 fans this is when you've got you know ten thousand people coming and that's really an opportunity
0: right but there is the opportunity for any artist to grow to that level um during this time and and i know when we talked that Right now with COVID, it's so uncertainty. I, I just, one of our speakers is a tour manager and his shows this weekend just got canceled. Uh, so he was supposed to be in Alberta and not happening. Uh, and I was supposed to be in Sweden next week, not happening. Uh, so here's a, the thing that there's going to be restrictions on international touring and that's going to make it really hard. And I know from working with artists and management companies, and agents what a headache a normal tour is but to think about entry and quarantine and testing it's yeah. actually more of an incentive for artists to stay home and grow locally but this type of platform allows international growth to continue
1: yes and and, and i think that's a really great idea which is which is how they can use it to grow their fan base and, and also foster that one-on-one interaction. And, you know, it requires a lot of thought, you know, like, you know, and if you, uh, if you, there are artists out there who are like asking the fans what they should do. The fans are making artwork that's integrated into the show. The artist performs the show. It's got the artwork, the fans made. I mean, like, you know, it can get really uh, personalized, you know, in a certain way for the fan base and, I think that's fantastic kind of stuff that that the internet's allowing. And uh, the thing we can't, one of the questions we had, by the way, which hopefully someday we'll solve, is when will we be able to let the artists perform with each other? Because that's one of the challenges right now is, like between you and me, even though we're not that far away, there's lag, you know, long enough lag that I couldn't really be playing music with you. And that unfortunately is that the internet is not a real-time thing (laughs) just yet. There's, there's too much delay to let us play music together. And that would be a big change. Now there is technology coming that might allow this. Uh, one of the first pieces of technology is 5G technology. Cause you know, the one thing that's that works at the speed of light is radio. <laughs> and so analog technologies actually work. Light works at the speed of light. And so does radio. So if you had a 5G system and it was able to transmit me to a, fiber optic thing that went straight to you, we can probably get the delay down to allow us to play together. And I think point to point cooperation like that is coming now so you'll be able to do that. But I think the biggest change that could happen is um, when Elon Musk's Starlink satellite system gets launched here, the, those are satellite to satellite communication, which is radio, and satellite to ground communication, which is radio. And the delay is sub 20 milliseconds. So, so, or so he says, we'll see what it really is. And if you get to that level, we can play somewhat drunkenly together.
0: <laughs>
1: still not going to be fantastic, but it might be cool. It might be okay. It might be good enough. You know, might be good enough. Uh, certain artists might benefit from that. So I don't know. But anyways, uh, uh, we're going to get to the point where that's happening, but it's still, there's, that's that's one of the big questions we had on the thing before. When will that be possible? Well, we really need to get real time. I, well, you know
0: one? what, it, maybe it's going to be a new genre, kind of like the auto-tune T-Pain kind of, uh, you know, effect to, to new music is uh, the live stream delay. So <laughs> <laughs> you never know. Now, you talked a little bit, and I really kind of want to get more into, you know, the monetizing factor. Like you talked about meet and greets and VIPs, and, and but also content. And I know when we talked earlier this week, um, I brought up how like Metallica played one show that was recorded, but then beamed out to drive-ins across uh, the States and was really successful. And, but then if you think about the after effect is that could turn into a documentary, it could turn into something that goes on to Netflix or Amazon Um, a live album that's on Spotify uh, there's so many things that could happen from just one performance now um, limited edition t-shirts and and that's one thing that you said about merch is you can actually find places that are print on demand in many different cities so shipping isn't as much of the issue anymore
1: yeah, yeah.
0: so can you talk yeah. more about your thoughts on on that?
1: yeah so first of all merchandise for a live stream, is all on demand you can go to a company you have to obviously you have to make mock-ups of the designs to be able to see what they would be getting. And then they can order 50 pink shirts and 20 of this ones and this mug and all of it's made on demand. So you don't have like the box of stuff like you have to have for a real live show where you've got way too many smalls and way too many triple X's, you know? And so, so the reality is, uh, although in my case, there's never enough triple X's, I don't know why it is, but, but uh, needless to say uh, uh, the, the, manufacturing merchandise is virtual now. That's completely separate from actual virtual merchandise, which is with NFTs and everything else that's coming now, where snippets of the show, limited design things, photographs, one-off photographs, you know, these kind of things can be sold now through these new platforms. And these are being integrated with the live streaming platforms. So next year, I think you'll see a lot more of this, where as part of the concert you'll be able to get limited. Part of the live event, and these, by the way, this is happening in sports and music and movies and everything else, is that you'll be a uh, an artwork market kind of coming at you of different kinds of things you can buy. And uh, it's really a fantastic thing because these are collectible. So, you know, we really, in the age of streaming services and everything else, we've lost the collectability of music. So people collect vinyl right now. That's like the collectible and collect books and photos. But the reality is, uh, digital, we should have had digital collectibles and, and NFTs are while still a little rough on the, you know, ecosystem of these things right now, they're becoming an important part of the strategy. You've got to really think about it. You've got to actually make it collectible. You know, you know, you don't want your NFT to have all of the value of a throwaway keychain. you know, that you would have had, you know, that's not really collectible. Uh, uh, so the reality is, what is it? What makes it collectible? That really a lot of thought needs to be put into it. Once it needs to be unique. It needs to be a limited edition. It needs to be something that that has uh, long-term value. So, uh, so that's on NFTs. Um, I might mention a little bit about the the access as well. So one of the features that I think will be possible, both of, both in physical shows and in online shows is ability to upgrade your video, upgrade your audio experience, you know, these kind of things and and actually in live shows themselves you can actually stream higher quality audio using devices now and there's a lot a couple of couple different vendors that are actually they probably wouldn't have been further along if covid hadn't shut the live business down but as that comes to forefront you go to the show and you buy a high fidelity audio booster it's essentially like a little thing you wear on your neck. it has a pair of over your headphones and you get actual stereo audio that's high resolution versus mono you know noise cancelled echo cancelled audio which is what you're hearing at a large show and uh, that's an example of an upsell that technology providing same kind of thing can happen at home. You can get you know master quality 24-bit audio version of the show if you want. And uh, this is happening it's happening more for k-pop and anime shows. these guys are selling quality. Uh, I think in the United States we're we're still stuck behind another uh, and I'll mention this technological challenge, which is the browser. So, you know, I'm a CTO and I don't want to get technical on you for a moment, but the reality is today's concerts are viewed through browsers and not apps. And there's a reason for that because apps suffer from the app store charge to sell tickets. So people generally in live streaming concerts don't want to pay. App Store people thirty percent of the money, so therefore you can't sell the ticket in the in the app, and you can't watch it in the app. You have to go in a browser where they can do whatever you want. And uh, it would be great if we could actually figure out a way to bring those two worlds together because apps are where you get four K, they're where you get high resolution sound, they're where you get Dolby Atmos, all the things we want. And browsers are dependent on fairly common denominator, lower common denominator standards. You're getting HD. And you're, maybe you can get stereo sound, but you really can't get multi-channel audio on a browser. So, so that is a limitation we currently have, and I'm hoping that we can get rid of that in the future.
0: Those are all amazing points, uh, especially ones that might have been not thought about. Uh, that upsell side, I, I think there's so many options that are coming. Uh, and, and one that I would sort of think is like people who are at the show Pay an upsell to get the actual video after the show. Yes. Uh, what a great so, idea! Yeah, like be, before it'd be like uh, you go to Then you YouTube can watch the song you didn't watch because you went to the bathroom. That would be really yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but but the other part is and and we also sort of talked about this like you know think about like how Pearl Jam were bootlegging all of their concerts and everybody wants to have that wanted to have that CD of the concert they actually were at. What not a great the, idea. You, you know, so so this is the other aspect of it is I was at this show, and there's that that's that live experience, but you get to remember it over and over again through the content that was created, um, and then also what you talked about collectibles. You know, I, I've thought about this a fair bit. Where uh, you know, last well, basically since paying for. A download of a song from Apple disappeared. Remember, it's ninety nine cents. You could download a song, and now it's streaming. Nobody really owns music anymore. They they own an account that lets them listen to music, and if you know, and I've seen this on some albums where oh, these three songs aren't actually there because the rights organizations are probably battling it out or the publishers. So it's not even the full album that you can stream for some artists. So that NFT side of things, I think that's where it's an interest because now people are looking into it because it's something that they own and only they own if it's a collectible. Right.
1: So first of all, this is really back to the original. Do people want to collect and own things? Yes, people do all kinds of things. And so the reality is it, there, was a, there was a great opportunity to move to streaming, which provided convenience and also made people not pirate music. You know, to some degree, it was really, I mean, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I don't know anybody who pirates music anymore. You know, maybe there's people copying hard drives music, but not, not that I know too much. Maybe music they can't get through a streaming service. That's probably the only thing that they can do right now. But the, what went out the window with that was the idea that I own a collection. I own these things. And really what went out of the window were box sets and the ability to build richer experiences and audiovisual experiences. It's been a big mantra of mine for a long time, which is that we don't have that. And the reason we don't have that is because the music right now, the lowest common denominator is the sound, the metadata that describes it and the album cover. Like that is music. Three things. Right. <laughs> you know, that's not a box set. A box set has writing, photographs, things you can interact with, video clips you can play. A box set would be more like a website, you know, or an interactive experience. And so the reason we don't have those things is because currently the lowest common denominator music product is set to the retailer, who is the streaming service, and they finish the product. So the the way I look at it is, this is like if I was Nike, I don't send you a shoe. I send the pieces of the shoe to the retailer who glues it together and gives you the shoe. And they may or may not glue them all together exactly the same way that I would do it. And they glued them together differently. And the biggest problem is I don't have the ability to add things to it. And I can't add things that come through to the client. So I'm not in control of what the experience is. So if one retailer adds lyrics and the other one doesn't, I'm not in control of that. If one adds more photos and this one has a different photo, I'm not in control of that. So in the old days of CD distribution, the entire product was able to be conceived of by the artist and, Figured out and they delivered all these assets, and the experience was exactly the same for everybody. And so we've given that up. NFTs solve this problem because now I can create a complete audiovisual experience, put all the assets in this thing that I control and sell it to you. And you can open it up and run it. And the media player doesn't really control what's in there. It's me, the creator of the NFT, that does. So the bad part about that is, is that you're going to have a lot of totally random experiences that are not going to be standardized. So people are going to get NFTs that are games. People are going to get NFTs that are albums. People are going to get NFTs that are just like a piece of art. And so it's going to be more complicated for consumers to understand what, which ones are good, what they are, what, what I want to get. But the other big thing is the artist can sell these directly to the fans and can get the fans connection information so they can update these things and communicate with them. So a lot of problems we have currently in the streaming marketplace could be solved by this. It's definitely disruptive. Uh, You know, my my thought about it is, is that if I was an independent artist and I've got a few thousand fans, I'd probably put out an NFT album and window the actual music going onto a streaming service. So I'd like sell an NFT album to my 2,000 fans for 20 bucks or whatever it is, and do that for two weeks. And then after that, it goes in the streaming service, because my 2,000 fans don't want it right away. And I'm going to make $20,000, $40,000, $200,000 right from that initial sale. It will be a long time before I, at that level, ever see that back from the streaming service. So, you know, but on the streaming service side, if my things a hit, I need that to be discovered and to become... Very popular. So I can't not have it there. So the question is how to approach that idea. So I think these are really huge decisions that are going to be made, being made by artists of this next year about like how to work with this new world and what does my NFT thing look like and do I even like it or do what do I do with it? And some artists may not be able to deal with that and just put stuff on the streaming service and some, you know, are going to be more sophisticated. Um, hate to say it, your album becomes more like building a good website. And, uh, you, you know,
0: it, it's funny, like I, I've been sort of using this metaphor, uh, you know, in Canada, hockey is big. Uh, music is just like hockey. If you look at it, it's like there's a season and at the end it's the playoffs and you're going for the cup. You might win, but you try again next year, replan. Sometimes you trade some people. But if, talking about collectibles, uh, you know, it wasn't that long ago where hockey teams started having the alternate shirt the pink shirt to support cancer, the black one, uh, the old school one, and it's all limited. But it, what it meant is that they had something new to sell every year, as opposed to the si- exact same jersey. Uh, so it's very much that kind of mindset. And you know, talking about collectibles, is collectibles popular? Well, in Toronto, when I walked down Spadina, there's a huge lineup almost every month, and it's for shoes, because certain shoes being released and people are willing to pay top dollar for it. Uh, so I sometimes think the music world is sometimes late to the game in this collector space, because I think that there's this sort of vibe of it's art. And I don't want to put a price on it sometimes or I don't like artists don't feel like selling. Uh, it's their their creation. So. Uh, I I often think that music is sometimes late to the game in in commercializing in some cases, and that means- It's
1: definitely late to the game. It's also the fact that we have these kind of bifurcated rights. There's a record company, there's a publisher, there's a video distributor, you know, and the product of the future is all those in one thing. (laughs) And so that would mean they have to work together. And so that's another big challenge, which is getting everybody to work together in these new art forms most people are going to see NFTs as very, very disruptive. So it can be a lot of like drama around what these things are and what the strategy is. If you were a big streaming service, you'd be like, Whoa, wait a minute. This is like a whole bunch of artists selling directly. They don't need a subscription to t- deliver these things, you know? So how do I feel about that? And so I think that the future of streaming services is to have a direct to fan channel mixed with a subscription and, uh, And, uh, you know, it's not that different than what iTunes, you know, Apple service, you can buy the movie, you can rent the movie, you can subscribe. And uh, that that may be a lot like what the future
0: is. Absolutely. And, you know, a lot of times I I find uh, moving forward is about looking back and growing off of uh, experience, uh, what worked and what didn't. And one thing that I've always sort of questioned too, like why uh, more artists aren't doing this, but I remember the days where there was fan clubs. A fan would pay a subscription for a year, get a little card in the mail, and newsletter every month, bi-monthly, or
1: okay. Hey, I was free. a KISS Army member. I was I was a member of the KISS Army.
0: Exactly. And, and so <laughs> I feel that this is the time where artists could actually start on building fan clubs online. That's correct.
1: And I think that's really empowering for them. The main thing that I want the artists to be able to do is have a direct one-on-one relationship with their fans. There's always been somebody in the middle between them and the fan, and they can't really get to their fans, and they have to pay to access their fans. And There's hope for the future where they actually can have – they can reach the fan, even if they don't even know who they are. I don't think it's so important to know who they are as where they are and that you can reach them and, uh, and, and find out what they like and have a calm dialogue with them the actual who isn't as important. It's just the the ability to connect with them and communicate with them. And, and so I'm hoping that artists can finally, maybe in the future control that as they have more direct lines of distribution to the fans themselves. That'd be great. Uh, I do feel a little bit also like the, the products can evolve. Like you were saying earlier, you know, so what, why isn't an album something that continues to change? You know, you get the new album from artist X and, This week, it looks like this. And then the idea is it costs $50. But every year, you're going to get an update to that album. (laughs) Like, those kind of concepts could be fun. Actually, what you're going to get is you're going to get a concert every quarter. Or, you know, that could be part of an album, too. You know, so, you know, I do think people are developing these ideas. And uh, uh, we haven't even gone into the topics of generative albums or generative music, where people are, they're not giving you an album. They're giving you an engine which takes the music that they made and makes more music for you. And and that's a completely different concept. Which What do you mean? It's a self-generating album. And when you listen to it today, it's different than when I listen to it in three months. And uh, these things are going to be possible. So I'm hoping for a lot of evolution. Um, I feel like we've been stuck with the same product offerings. The focus has been on streaming as it was conceived with little or no evolution of the product. For
0: a decade I agree I agree and, so and it's like, oh, go I'll ahead. show you
1: iTunes 2010 and iTunes today and you tell me what's different you know
0: yeah. well, <laughs> well you know it, it's uh I often tell this story that I used to work at HMV a long time ago and in my lifetime I remember eight tracks when I was a kid my dad would pop an eight track in the truck and then vinyl cassettes CDs mp3s and like i said we actually went to literally nothing physical and it's all digital and not owning i I feel we're actually at the stage now that we're going through the transition of what's the next media what's the next platform and i remember working at hmv um, and you know also within the arts world i find there's also like sort of pushback like oh i don't want it to change because i like how it is and I remember when uh, we were receiving an album, I think it was Metall- a Metallic album, and I was like, where's the cassettes? And they're like, they didn't make them. And I was like, but I like cassettes. And, and the, the <laughs> truth of the matter is, is nobody cares about my opinion. They're going to, business is going to move forward, right. whether I like it or not. And, and so a lot of the messages that we've been saying is really educate now, because this is a time of change, and be ready for it, so that you're a part of it because live streaming is the future and venues are now being retro, like they're being fitted out so that they have the camera capabilities. They have the tech capabilities. And, and again, we don't know if we can tour properly, like we know. So things are changing whether we like it or not, but I'm on the positive side where I think that this is just nothing, but like you said, direct access to fans, collectibles, making sure that uh, you're growing your global audience, but the cost of it, you're not touring necessarily all the time. It, it's actually very positive in, in moving forward. Now- it,
1: I, it does require you to really think about your, what you're doing. And it does really, in live streaming, like if you wanna do a live stream and, you ha- and you're marketing to your global audience, then you can't just do the same show the next week. <laughs> Right. Maybe you didn't get all your audio maybe a lot of people missed it and so they like and they heard it was great. So then you get the people who missed it. And then the week after that you get the people who missed it the second time. But you can see that's a slippery slope. You're gonna the problem is is that you're gonna have to be very creative about that. And the people who were successful at the constant shows changed them up all the time, took fan interaction, they didn't just play the same songs every time. They they had ideas, they did cover shows, they okay, this week, you know you know we're gonna cover the bgs and next week we're gonna do something where i'm gonna my favorite classic rock songs of all times so or whatever and so so how do you keep it interesting that's a big challenge and that's really different than what most artists do most artists develop a show with a set of songs that they know are good they see the audience reaction and they kind of reel it out in real time but the show in another city is 70 percent, 80 percent the same if not 90 percent. and uh, that's right yeah so uh you know okay uh you can do that, but it means you can do a live stream. You know, you have to change it up. What's the what's the idea? And, you know, that's why collaborations with other artists are really good. That's another thing that's really great is if you could actually manage to, un, you know, in the online space, since you don't have to travel, if you are friends with Dave Grohl and you can get him to drop by your house, you know, <laughs> it's a lot easier for him to do that than to jet into Paris and join you on stage. Like, that's a huge thing for him. But if you're, you know, if, if, you, if you can get your friends to do stuff with you, that adds that adds, and and then you guys perform something together. That that adds something interesting to your shows. And most artists don't think like that because they're still thinking I'm touring and like my friend is not traveling on the road for me. And if something like that happens, it's a rarity. And uh, uh, you know, I watched uh, at Ball Rock this weekend. You know, Guns and Roses. Uh, Dead Grohl came on there. He came on. <laughs> the only problem was is that they played past ten o'clock and they turned the power off on them, which was pretty funny. Uh, it was Paradise City, and then nothing
0: (laughs) yeah well like we said uh guns N' roses they're known for going over and going late and uh, in this case not in napa not not happening 10
1: o'clock is 10 o'clock people
0: right and and so so with that said like think an artist i keep bringing up metallica i don't know why i keep saying metallica but um they can for instance do a different album front to back every six months in between they could possibly do an all acoustic version of it
1: Right. Or orchestra, they've done that.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. They could do the symphony as well. So, so there's options and ways to think about it, um, and it could be different settings, like a full production. But Metallica also had garage days, like they could be in the garage, and that could be kind of cool. Right. but the that's a
1: lot of work for them. You know, they got to run, they got to learn more songs. But you know, if they're not touring, conceptually, they can get together and work out their show. You know, so like this would be very hard to do if you're on the go all the time every day. You can't do anything but just like wake up and try to get to the next show. So, more free time needs to lead to more creative, fun shows.
0: Right. And again, it, it uh, just to reiterate what we said before that that has a potential to turn into a documentary, uh, a full video that goes on to Amazon, Netflix. Uh, and then, if the life cycle goes through and and you know, views are down, they could all get chopped up into individual videos on YouTube and Content ID monetizes. Uh, and then of course on streaming as a live album, there's so many options from just that one performance. Yeah, that, By the
1: way, that's worth mentioning, which is there's so many, you know, music concerts on the big streaming platforms. We should talk about that, which is, so there's not a lot of music on Netflix. There's not a lot of music on Peacock. There's not a lot of music on any of these things. Um, And there should be more. And the reality is, is that it's uh, uh, licensing and other things that prohibited some of this. And, and uh, uh, ultimately um, I'm hoping that through this, I'll call it technological, you know, improvement to venues or anything else, first of all the costs are coming down to do really high quality stuff. So uh, Netflix can get a series of high quality shows from a venue and, make something that people want to watch on a weekly basis and get a host and think how to put it together. And, and uh, there's, you know, they have huge audiences. We know the students who do like music. It's, 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 uh, it's something we need to work on as an industry to get better distribution on those platforms. Right now it's like Taylor Swift puts out something. Okay, great. And maybe somebody else puts something out. There are very small amounts of that. There's no series. There's nothing on there that's really, Uh, bringing music and create a lot of visibility for, especially emerging artists or other artists. You know, we need that and uh, uh, should be happening.
0: Hopefully, well. Absolutely. And uh, I I know we want to talk a little bit about streaming and artist payouts and and such. But uh, before we do that, you know, we talked about venues are getting fit now for streaming capabilities and, and cameras and all that such. If because live touring might not be taking place internationally, the focus is local. It's almost like turning into a Las Vegas where it's a residency possibly Mm -hmm. at at your hometown and there's venues uh, set up. And, you know, I'm I'm trying to always be that positive light in saying, like, artists are like, oh, but touring, touring. I'm like, yeah, but look at Las Vegas. How much did Celine Dion make? playing the same city night after night. How much money did Def Leppard or Aerosmith make playing the same city every night? So, so there's models to look at that will work in these areas. Um, yeah, I think
1: I think what I call like, you know, micro residencies where there are a few days around a concept and a location and then just a few locations. So, you know, you go to LA and you do something there and then you go somewhere else and do it in Detroit. And, you know, I think that can be done. Again, you have to make that an audio-visual show. That has to be something really special. Maybe a special guest can make that because you can get them to commit to four locations for a period of time or something. So, you know, these kind of creative ideas, I think, are really, uh, really important. And and also, there's going to be new venues, which are, you know, opening, that have more of the LED screens built into them. So the media aspect of it's going to have to be thought of uh, a lot more. You know, today's, you know shows are still not that media sophisticated, unless you're at the top end of the artist spectrum. And that technology barrier is coming way, 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 way down to where, you know, even uh, emerging acts are gonna have to have media and visuals and, you know, as part of their show. And uh, anyways, I I think it's really super interesting.
0: Absolutely. And, you know, um, thinking of that UFC model too, um, because thinking of, you know, we're at this venue when UFC goes into a city, it's a week. There's, you pay for the VIP access to watch the training, you watch the weigh-ins, there's a press conference, there's a dinner, like there's, a, there's this whole lead up to the event that fans interact prior to the event. And so I think that artists could take a look at that even, and even on a small scale, even if it's an artist starting off and it's like 50 people, Say we're going to do a dinner meet and greet. We're going to uh, do an after show meet and greet. Like, But you could do the before. the day Wonderful
1: before. idea. I think you it's know? a wonderful idea. And I think you don't have to be a huge artist to do something at that scale. I think it's it also could be more intimate and it could be really cool. And you might have a friend who's a chef or might have a friend who has a restaurant or something like that. And they could use a little bit of the business these days. So, you know, a lot of ideas there. I think that are great
0: absolutely and get some uh, liquor sponsors involved and, and things like that and they're always
1: they're always there
0: <laughs> all right now i know that we you wanted to talk about the pay payment models for artists on streaming platforms a little bit um the 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 complaint obviously is our artists aren't paid enough um what are your yeah. uh, comments well on that?
1: i think it's going to change i think the reality is uh, so the problem we have is we have the payout is based upon popularity and in fact to some degree global popularity you know or whatever popularity in the platform and so the top thousand people make most of the money it might even be like the top 100 people and uh and the rest are sharing what's left and that but everyone's music is required to be in the platform for it to be thought of as complete <laughs> so So that, and I think at this point, that's becoming not sustainable. It really became obvious when touring went away. We're still in a mode where it's really restricted because, okay, those streaming services don't pay me any money, but I make the money from touring. Well, as soon as touring went away, you're like, okay, well, how do I survive now? So I do feel what's going to change that. We already talked about is direct-to-fan distribution of NFT albums, and people are going to start buying files again. People are going to start buying these pieces of art. People are going to start doing it. The VIP meet and greets, the online concerts, these these are different payment models. And by the way, those are not integrated into the current music streaming platforms. You know, you don't you Spotify is telling you about a show that you can go see in, in Spotify, but they're not actually collecting money for the show and streaming it inside Spotify. So the reality is how do we get all of this re-adjusted really so that you can have a better distribution of the money? So I think people are working on that. I think NFTs will be, that's real, real really, really adjusted because it's like my thing, you buy and you pay me. And, uh, but I think other models could evolve for streaming that are a little more fair for the artist, especially for emerging artists and things like that. It sounds a little socialistic. It's, you know, wealth distribu- redistribution, but maybe we have to do that, you know. And so the reality is maybe that's what needs to be done. And uh, what I do know right now is that if you're, in jazz or classical music or you know a uh, new type of music you know you just can't economically make any kind of living from streaming services so do we just like not want those people uh, or they have to survive on playing the concert halls when they can't even do that so i do feel like we really need to think about a healthy music ecosystem and we're all in it together and and we're going to have to make some changes and uh it's not working for everybody. Let's just say that.
0: Well, you know, you, that that's exactly it, and and that's, you know, music has always been disruptive, and 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 there's always push and pull and change. Uh, I think what we're seeing right now is we're being forced because it's locked down, because we can't travel, and I I, I think that that's one of the things, if if anything that's come out during this time is is when it's exposing the cracks in the system, there's discussions that are taking place that haven't taken place before or took a lot longer to get the right people to the table to have discussions. And so uh, I really see the next 12 to 24 months is really gonna propel us forward. Um, and, and these business models are really gonna take place and take root quite quickly. Um, would you agree on that? Yeah, I do
1: agree on that. I think the other, thing that's really important to mention is the monetary value isn't actually even in the music. <laughs> that's the that's the problem. The problem is the monetary values in the equity in the ecosystem of, that surrounds the music. So that's a bigger structural problem. So the equity value in the businesses that sell music is tens of billions of dollars. It's all equity and the musicians don't share in that at all, generally speaking. Maybe at the beginning of those businesses, some of them shared a little bit. But that's, a, that's the problem of, of that. And so, you know, you could think of other models where instead of equity-based music businesses, it's a cryptocurrency-based music industry, you know? And then people that put out music own part of the crypto. And as the crypto goes up, then they all turn it. So I do think that there's a huge amount of discussion. And unfortunately, people move very slowly because it's taken a lot of work just to get what's working now working. But again, it's not working for everyone. So, okay, how do we make something that's a little bit different? How can we all share in that? You know, everybody that's in music business loves music and loves artists and loves being part of it. And it just needs to be a better business for everybody. And uh, uh, that includes the big companies that are in there. They should be able to do better too. We're just not that efficient. And other businesses are doing better, being more efficient in this environment than we are. So I'm hoping that that things can change. It's uh, it's uh, again, like you said, we're able to see cracks in the system a little bit, and so it's important now to respond to that and try some new ideas.
0: Right, and, and you know, you kind of reminded me of a quote from Will I Am. Um, I've watched in a interview, and I've always kind of gone back to it in the sense that he said music originally was never meant to make money it was meant to sell things and he's like in the old start it was selling sheet music and then selling stereos and where did stereos they're in cars and where do people listen to music in cars and so on and you know headphones and and he said how uh doctor like yeah he said who's the, the you know wealthiest in hip-hop at the time was dr dre and why because of headphones not the music so so i think there's a way to sort of shift that type of thinking in that, especially again, thinking that collectible space and, and merchandising and, and being really creative. And and really it's, it's. I think the discussions we've had this week is really focused a lot on building audience and through marketing. And a lot of it was planning. So as you say, the, the plan has to be in place before action in, in a lot of cases, because how do you, how can you predict the results and how can you, a lot of people don't think about projections first. Like if I do this, this will happen. If I do this X number of times, it'll happen more times and so on. And, and that's about building audience. So um, yeah, the future is bright. And I, I'm, I think that this is actually the best time for an artist. And we've seen the industry trends that are moving towards being a DIY emerging artist as opposed to being an, uh, major label artists because the tools are there and cutting out possibly that middleman when you can get that direct fan access and get the money and not do the splits, uh, possibly that were, uh, future rec- or past record label, uh, deals. Uh, this is an exciting time to tie. Um, I do have a couple questions here, um, that I just want to get before we go. Um, this is from Mike Warner. Uh, Mike Warner, one of our other speakers, uh, author of Work Hard, Playlist Hard. Um, if I have an image that I created and want to upload it and sell it as an NFT right now, which website is the most user friendly to do this? Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> well, question. Yeah. Look, first of all,
1: I, I'm not sure just an image is going to be that successful as a product. If you look at the things that are successful, there are people still selling images, but they're richer things are doing better. And also the question is who made the image? Did you make the image? Was it made by somebody who's already a a crypto artist? Was it made by somebody who's a traditional artist? Is it a photographer? Who is that? And so um, the more successful NFTs have some interesting combination. It's a could be an up-and-coming crypto artist combined with it. He's interpreting, you know, I don't know, music by Prince, I don't know, but they have a story. They have something around them. Also, a lot of the very successful entities come from something that's more like a, a, a digital art collection. So, you know, the Bored Apes collection, you know, the CryptoPunks. And these are generative pieces with individual things people can collect. They're almost like baseball cards, that's the way I would describe it. And so a single piece of art is not a stack of baseball cards, nor it is the idea of, of collecting baseball cards. So I think you asked about like the websites. There are exchanges where you have to basically float the NFTs and you have to basically put them out there. Often the exchanges are tied to a specific type of cryptocurrency. So the exchange, this exchange works with Ethereum, and this one works with Bitcoin, and this one works with something else. And so, so that is another area of complexity which is to try to figure out which ones are successful one way to think about it is to look for pieces of art that are like what you're doing with people that are kind of similarly situated to who you are that are actually in the community and Reddit or somewhere saying it was successful for them and working and uh, the community is still relatively small and you can find out what's successful and what's not uh it's, uh, but I don't think there's anybody. This it's kind of like the Wild West right now. There's nobody that's got domination of the distribution at this point. It's kind of good. It's kind of good that there isn't one guy that's got ninety eight percent of all crypto distribution.
0: Right, and it's, and what you said about collections is spot on. Um, I think it was was it Jake Paul, one of the YouTube uh, brothers, uh, released three thousand items within a collection and they all sold, and he made a couple million in like an hour.
1: Yeah, the way to think about it is, like, if you were the first guy to have a baseball card, right, and you're like, here's my baseball card, then that's it. You're yeah. like, well, wait, are there going to be other cards by other guys? Is there going to be the whole team? Like, are there going to be different years? Are we- <laughs> no, yeah. no, it's just one card. It's the one guy. right here. Maybe I'll do that in the future. So the idea of having a collection, something you can collect is the word collection. So you're right. That's an important idea.
0: And and something as a strategy in the collection that I've read about, uh, if you think of it, say, if I was going to do a collection of pizzas and I've got a hundred pizzas, but there might only be one vegetarian pizza out of the whole collection. So the value, because it's rare within that collection goes up and I might have 20 pepperoni, five ham and pineapples and so that's on. The, and and it's that's the, the same pineapples. with all
1: collectibles, you know, like the, you know,
0: Muscle car with the four
1: on the floor, convertible Hemi Cuda. You know, there's not that many of those left, and those are worth a lot. You know, yeah, the you know ones that were millions and millions and millions of them. I'm not so sure how collectible Tesla Model Threes are going to be. Sorry, There's a lot of them.
0: They all look the same.
1: Now, with that said,
0: there's, there's yeah. Now, with that said, there's another question here. There's a huge surge for older '80s, '90s comics and cards. I just found my box yesterday. Uh, during this pandemic or any physical collectibles. I wonder if it's only for certain demographics, which may be older. You
1: know what? I have a 20 year old son. He was never more excited than realizing that, that I still have my box of comic books and collectible things like that, which he poured through and organized and then promptly put into a spreadsheet to figure out how much it was worth and uh, was disappointed by many of them. But the reality is, is that, that, all ages like these kind of ideas and, and analog stuff is cool to young people. You know, it's kind of interesting for them to like, look at it and go, right. It's a thing, you know, cause everything they do is on the phone, you know, and you know, everything to them is like a screenshot on the phone, like a screenshot of that image. So the value of that is not super high. They have billions of them, but they're not really that valuable. And so I do think that it's uh, important and uh, I'm sorry for the, uh, the, the parents everywhere who threw that stuff out, whose kids are going dad threw out x-men one what happened you know i don't know son It was sitting in the garage under my old tools for five years and i just threw it away sorry about that
0: well <laughs> i i made it well at the time i was really excited to be about going into being a musician and guitar and i sold all my x-men to be able to buy a guitar tuner uh so if i didn't might have been a different story to these days but uh you this,
1: know this is why collecting you just never know and that's why I've, I hate to say it, I don't want all all of us to become hoarders and have junk, you know, garage full of junk, but that's kind of what collector guys and gals are like, and uh, they never know, you know, what, oh, I didn't know that the Disney, you know, I mean, right now, as you guys can see, Marvel is such a huge thing with Disney, so all those Marvel comic books and anything with those characters in it, those are doing super well because there's so much interest in them. And uh, they really weren't really worth that much, you know, 20 years ago. So No, you know.
0: I, I was a collector then. And and uh, one thing that reason why I was kind of looking for the comic books is I I was actually one person and I didn't know too many others. I collected Shang-Chi comics. And now that that movie is out, I'm, I'm going to. Those are shooting look.
1: through the roof. There you go, <laughs> man.
0: Well, Number think about, one. That's, what, that's why you look at
1: these NFTs today and you think about who, you know, that's why emerging artist NFTs, you know, they're not as expensive and they could, you know, they could, you never know. They could be the next black Pumas, you know? So.
0: You never know. I, I just want, I know we're over just a little bit, but if we could do um, one more question here, uh, are the younger TikTok generation buying physical merch over digital?
1: Good question. I, I don't know. It was a very interesting thing to be at Bottle Rock this weekend and watch them lining up in massive lines to buy shirts and stuff from their favorite artists and i would say yeah some stuff you know i think it's the right thing i do feel like that that has changed how music is discovered i mean tiktok is now the number one way music is discovered and uh uh influencer marketing you know it's a new whole new thing so that's we didn't talk much about that like Maybe it isn't most important, especially as an independent artist, is to get to the playlist guy at Spotify, to put you on the playlist. First of all, it's hard to get to those guys and gals and B, they're not going to put you on there because they're putting big artists on there. Find some influencer who's really got something going, who you can convince to something cool with them and then offer to do something cool. Do a custom piece of music for them. Do something like that. Man, I think those things are going to be really important. And uh, it's a whole new world. You know, who knew? If you went back three years, I think it's the most important way for people to discover new music now. Uh, yeah. so you need some young guy or gal to dance to your song. I think that's what you need.
0: Well, I, I know I've done my own sort of personal research. My girlfriend's kids uh, at the time were uh, nine and 11. And I know that they watched their first concert through Fortnite. Yeah. And I know that we all relate to our first concert experience. Um, so that's that's what they know. And they don't know that venues are closed they don't know anything but other what they're learning right now and that's the next generation so for christmas i gave them each a 25 dollar card to be able to purchase items on Fortnite, and i'll tell you it was gone both were gone in five minutes and uh we i know we didn't talk digital merch but but that's going to be the next thing too that's how Uh, all
1: video games now make their money you know it's, it's like again like, are we stupid music? We're smart music people. Why can't we figure this out? Like, you know, yeah. video game guy, man, I paid like five bucks to get like a little symbol on my special shield in my game. You know, like I really wanted that. It wasn't even unique. Like anybody could buy that it. little symbol, but I needed that because that made me feel better because I don't play the game very well, but my shield is cool. So I would like music to build a benefit from that. We just need to all figure out how to do it. I and mean, really what we need is we need platforms that allow us to do this, you know, Commerce is not part of platforms, although I know Amazon Music put a little bit of Amazon in there now. But why not? Why we have a music fan there? Why isn't everything we can do with the music fan available through that platform in some way? If I want to sell him something, I want to talk to him, I want to, you know, have him collect things I've got, and you know, we just have it so narrowly focused. It seems like we're I don't know what. It's
0: weird. Yeah. Well, it it is. <laughs> but- <laughs> It, that's a question we can't answer it's like it's
1: like, a, it's like I'm going to the 7-Eleven and the only thing they got is coffee. I'm like, can I get something beside coffee? You got a big shelf here. Can I get some other drinks? How about, how about a donut? Is that possible? Sorry, sir. We only have coffee at the 7-Eleven.
0: Well, <laughs> if there's anything I could say, I think it's just simply that there's the side of the creative and there's the side of the business. And even within our industry, there's been a struggle on getting both of those parties to the table sometimes Uh, and then this is all about taking both of those sides externally to the world and and to the masses so uh ty i can't thank you enough for your time Uh, this has been a great conversation and i know we could probably go for hours on this uh any last comments before we uh call it a day
1: uh i just think everyone should uh you know think about even in even if you're not, you know, the biggest artist in the world, how you can take steps to do some of these things and learn about them because everyone's going to make mistakes. So, I feel like you just experiment a little bit and you'll learn a lot and then from that you'll be able to take the next important step. The most important thing is to do things and try things and not be afraid and they don't have to be expensive either. It just but you do have to you do have to experiment a lot and figure out what works.
0: Think of it as a band rehearsal trying to figure out a song trying to write a song how long it takes to rehearse a set uh and you just try to try to try again so yeah, that's right and we're good at that so with that thank you so much ty uh always good to talk to you uh thank, thank I, you
1: daryl it was great to be here
0: yeah so thank you so much and everybody uh tomorrow we've got another huge lineup uh starting at 12 with uh Martin Atkins. Uh, if you haven't seen any sessions with Martin Atkins, he's great at disruptive marketing. Uh, he's written books, Tour Smart. He has also written uh, Welcome to the Music Business, You're Fucked. Uh, and he's done really great projects through this COVID time where he's launched new activities and is making money. He's going to share some of that information tomorrow. So I hope to see you here. Uh, again, thank you so much for tuning in. And thank you, Ty. Bye bye.